It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at penfed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. Today is June the 29th in 2023, and my guest is Walter Patterson. Walter is the co-founder and chief science officer of MiniCircle, a biotech startup that produces reversible gene therapies. MiniCircle is notorious in biotech circles for some of their bold moves, including self-experimentation. It's conducting clinical trials on Roatan, Honduras, under the legal protection of Prospera within a special economic zone. Today, we'll learn about MiniCircle, gene therapy, and regulatory challenges, and we'll learn about one of the iconic founders behind it. Walter, welcome to the show. Howdy, Nick. Thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to talk about what we've been doing, our story behind uh, how we came to be in the position we are, and also shed some light on why we are doing the things we're doing and also what our intentions and goals are. Yeah, it's quite a story. I've been following and we've been friends for a while now since we were hanging out together in Prospera. So really glad to have you finally on, Walter. How did you get into science and what role does it play in your life? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think it's interesting for a lot of different reasons because everyone has their own take on how they came to science, whether that's just their natural inclination, whether they found it fascinating, whether it was a teacher, whether it was an activity they were doing. I think for me, it was kind of all the above. You know, my teachers were a big inspiration, but also the fact it was almost like magic in some ways to be able to, to affect the world in sometimes miraculous ways, whether that's through a chemical reaction or, you know, even electricity, like how lights flicker on and off and all the interactions, just science in general is essentially just magic with understanding, just kind of wrapped all around it. In the modern world, seeing all everything from cell phones to TVs, these are all things that are brought about through science and engineering. The medicines we take when we have an upset stomach or Let's say you need some life-saving like insulin or something like that. All these things are byproducts of science and we use them on a daily basis, just these magical little items that are just sprinkled out throughout our lives. And so, of course, I had a fascination towards that. Fantastic. How did you get into biohacking and self-experimentation and what role does it or should it play in relation to science? You know, one of the things about science and one of the things about, you know, particularly medicine is self-experimentation has a long and storied history. I feel like the way through a lot of people who've got into self-experimentations, you have a scientific question, you have a particular either means by which you think you can solve a particular issue or benefit a particular issue, and you have the ability to evaluate that in vitro or in an animal model. And after that's done, you essentially can step up to the precipice and attempt it on yourself. We see this in certain examples, such as those gentlemen who were able to prove that a particular type of bacteria uh, was able to essentially start give you ulcers. And so they got a Nobel Prize, you know, several years ago. And essentially what they did is they actually just consumed the bacteria, showing that once they had got ulcers or the symptoms of ulcers, that it was caused by that and not certain things like stress or certain types of food. But that was a 
medical quandary that was answered by self-experimentation. There's several examples of this throughout the entirety of medicine's history, particularly in more, I guess we would think of them as more antiquated times. But, you know, the physics of Newton's is just as good to, as today as it was yesterday in terms of being able to land a rocket on the moon. In terms of how I came to self-experimentation, uh, you know, we had developed this technology to essentially transit one bit of gene to a person into their cells. And so we had the ability to express this particular protein in the case of full stem 344. And, you know, based on what we've seen in both literature is also some clinical reporting, as well as in in vitro and in mice models. You know, we were fairly certain about the safety profile of these things. You know, we were not just wild cowboys just going out and putting anything into our body. No, it's a very carefully selected, very rigorously examined process before we stepped up to the plate. And so we have this potential treatment and self-administered it to ourselves, looked and saw what happened. Great. What's the current status of self-experimentation kind of legally and how it's seen in the mainstream in science and in commercializing biotechnologies? It depends on who does it. You know, for example, a doctor can self-administer to themselves all day long, and there's no legal issue with that. And that's, that's typical. Um, I've known doctors who've uh, administered either, for example, a small molecule, peptide, or gene therapy to themselves. And there has been, you know, there's no real decrying. I've seen it written up in case reports uh, and there's no real issue. I think, you know, in terms of self-experiment, you are the person, particularly if you develop the treatment or are a medical professional, you have the, the ability to consent because you know what you're ingesting and the process by its development, and where it is on, along its development. And so you can have informed consent that legally speaking. Um, you know, there's certain countries and it depends on the country. For example, in Sweden, you, uh, an individual can't really administer to themselves, but in the United States, a scientist or a medical pro uh, professional can administer things to themselves and do often in terms of the wider medical community and scientific community. I, you know, I think that people decry individuals. It, it's somewhat elitist in some of the viewpoints I feel like. So if you're a medical professional or a scientist, essentially someone who the you know scientific or medical community can say, oh, this guy knows what they're doing, they'll be fine. Versus a layman, someone who doesn't really have as much either impact factor or a medical degree or publications, essentially. It's a little bit more risque because the worry is someone could accidentally hurt themselves. But, you know, this is done time and time again, particularly among medical professionals and are published in case reports. Great. Yeah. And I feel like, um, not for everything, like for rare diseases, it doesn't make always sense to test it on yourself. But if it's something that is like for a more general population and you wouldn't give it to yourself, like why should, could you, why would you give it to others? Right. So I feel it's almost like a skin in the game thing. Right. So you should be the one that best knows about it. And, you know, trying it on yourself just shows you really believe in the safety of it instead of sort of outsourcing the liability to others, right? No, and that's very true. Like, uh, I feel like, you know, to have skin in the game is a different question. And also it depends on the treatment of the disease. 
if something is only viable in sick people, then you can only administer to sick people. That's not the case for every type of medicine there is. You can administer aspirin to perfectly healthy people and get a control group. And so a lot of, uh, of these self-experimentations you actually do see on healthy individuals, even as long as the certain safety factors and parameters are respected. So it's very particular. And I feel like that's one of the strong cases for uh, self-experimentation dependent on the actual like type and what the medicine's actually geared towards treating and how it's geared towards treating the actual illness. Great. How did you find your way into gene therapy and can you give listeners a one-on-one on gene therapy what it is and why it is important yeah like a lot of people i went to college i studied biotechnology um and i have had an absolute fascination with genes just because essentially it's like computer programming every biological function you have whether that's the ability to break down some kind of sugar Uh, where your where your body grows an arm, wh what color your hair is, just all these different examples that you know affect you as an individual. For me, I am this many feet tall. That was kind of the maximum predetermined by my genetics and how like uh, I'm built, like where my arms are located, how many arms I have, how many fingers I have. All that is hardwired into your genome, and in certain cases, sometimes things aren't coded right. And so with gene therapy, there was this idea that you can go in and fix something that's either not performing as well as it possibly could or something that's broken. And I think that really attracted me towards the subject matter. You know, you have even things that are just blatantly useful, GMO crops or GMO materials. And so being able to take the natural world and mold it in a way to whatever benefit you want it to within reason, I think is an extremely powerful and extremely alluring thing. And I don't think it's very as dangerous or like, you know, playing God as much as people think. Oftentimes you're using the tools he gave you. So in terms of just what is gene therapy, like I said, If you have a, a gene that is not doing what it's supposed to be doing, it's broken, or if it's not doing something it could do, be doing better at, or if you want to add a gene that will be better at doing a particular thing, that's essentially all gene therapy is. And each different treatment is essentially wrapped up in the idea of how do we go about getting it to do or change in that particular way. So this can be through viral vectors. So there's a, a bunch of them using AAV virus for like eye degeneration where people will eventually go blind or inherited blindness in some uh, types of like degeneration of the eye. There's, of course, like uh, are some of the COVID vaccines uh, use the AAV vector. It's widely studied. I could just list out the different bits, but essentially you're using a artificial little viron to get a gene into cells and those genes then code like any other bit of DNA. Typically they integrate in some vector setups. They don't have to, uh, like in ours, we don't use a virus. Uh, we just use a straight plasmid. Uh, that's another viable option. So you can take these little bits of circular DNA 
I like to call them little CDs of DNA because they can add, but they can't really take away. Just kind of how like if you put a CD into a CD player, it doesn't really affect like the internal workings or hardware of a CD player, but you can play a pretty song and it can express the protein in this case. And that's been used for decades now at this point, particularly in whether you're doing some in vitro work and you're trying to figure out how a particular gene operates. And so you're adding little fluorescent tags here and there, but it can essentially only add, can't take away. And then you have things like CRISPR. I was reading a paper and they were using it to treat uh, things like sickle cell anemia. So where someone's inherited something that is particularly bad for them health-wise. Uh, and also some, I've seen some for like certain types of eye degeneration, where essentially you have these issue genes and you can essentially give it a little guide RNA. And so it can go into your chromosome and cut out that bad sequence. And so therefore you're not producing that bad protein anymore. And so that's, these are different examples, different little tools in the toolkit that we can go in and somehow change or add genes to fix issues. And also by happenstance, just have people with better health, which is partly some of our goal of having people living longer, happier, fuller lives. Great. What's the upside potential of gene therapy? How much could we fix with it? So could we live like hundreds of years? Absolutely. If you look at like just the history of medicine and the trajectory of medicine, it has always been about having people live longer, healthier lives, whether that's taking baby aspirins to make sure you're okay with your heart, whether that's taking certain types of heart medication, liver medication, whether it's in our case, just going straight for the genes and potentially fixing some of the problem genes or adding beneficial genes to essentially increase one's longevity, increase one's health span, as it were. You know, making sure you're not just living to 120 old and decrepit, but no, you're actually still functionable and you're actually in good health. That way, if anything else happens, you're still able to bounce back from it. And I think that's the trajectory of medicine. Um, people, in my view, you know, we're if we were to compare this to electricity, gene therapy right now is about where Ben Franklin was flying the kite. We haven't got to the iPhone yet. So we have a long way to go, but eventually we're organisms consisting of billions of codes, all written in A, T, G, and C. And being able to write that code, being able to change that code, no longer are we kind of just the, uh, you know, a figure in the landscape, as it were, just to quote somebody, but, you know, an active participant in the landscape directing our own lives and overall the life and health of our, our community, our species, our family, by being able to go in and change ourselves for the better. Great. And what are the challenges with gene therapies to get it to wider adoption? Every gene therapy is a particular tool, just like any medicine. It's good for what it's good for. It's not good for what it's not good for. And the only way you get around that issue is by different variations, having multiple uh, gene therapies available and developed. If someone needs a gene therapy for your kidneys, 
well, uh, gene therapy for muscle or bone density is not going to help you. It's one of those things where the more the merrier. And it's one of those things where nine times out of 10, I feel like if I code up a vector, uh, particularly in vitro, and I go in, I have to go through several iterations just to get it to work the way I want it to work. And so there's a natural iteration process with all of this. And I think we're just going to need more generations of genetic engineers uh, tackling really hard problems, you know, more companies, more inventions, more different vector designs. Everyone's really excited about CRISPR right now and has been for the past few years. And it's an amazing bit of technology, but even it has limitations. There's not going to be one silver bullet in this case. It's going to be a wide reaching, gradual change over the decades to come where this technology is fine-tuned and developed to the point where we can affect larger and larger systems, but also having greater and greater outcomes for, you know, both in terms of things like infectious disease, degenerative disease, both in terms of degeneration by either environment, poisoning, or just standardized aging. I think that that's really the big thing is there's only so much you can focus on with any one therapy during the development time that hopefully as you know we continue further and for further towards the singularity i'm crossing my fingers on this that we might get to the point where it's going to be as simple as coding a computer program but we're just not there yet I, I feel like there needs to be more minds and hands on this project because i do feel like this is one of the greatest endeavors of this century. So let's talk about MiniCircle. How did you get to start the company? What's the founding history of you starting a company together with your co-founder, Mac Davis? Yeah, so me and Mac, uh, we met as, uh, I feel like, a story oldest time as buddies back in college. It's quite a little bit of a funny story. Uh, we bonded over just kind of some musical tastes, and he had a biodiesel truck or a biodiesel bus and a car. And I ended up uh, heading over to his house and helping him like make some biodiesel. And we just kind of found it. We both had a very strong passion for biology in all its forms. He's a little older than me. He left for after college. I uh, was finishing up and he came out to Austin, Texas and him and a bunch of other gentlemen founded a nonprofit little bio lab here, little BSL one. And, you know, after I got done with college, I came back out, uh, see what was going on. And we just kind of started tinkering around in the laboratory as it were. A colleague introduced us to this idea of mini circles and using plasmids as fairly long-term gene therapies. This really fascinated us because I was familiar with plasmids from working you know, with bacteria, you know, I worked in a BSL2 lab using, you know, different kinds of uh, bacteria and nematodes and dealing more with like the industrial side of things. And so when we was like, okay, how do we make a lot of that? And, you know, we started essentially tinkering around on that. But then as time went on, we went through different variations. 
of that particular technology. And eventually there was the realization of, hey, no, this could, this could be really big. I was the first to self-administer that back then. Uh, it was uh, Vector B. And it was a little bit, it's not as long lasting as the current one, but essentially we just threw in vitro and we also contracted some mice labs and just started testing on it. And essentially that was the formation of the company. Uh, the realization that, hey, this is a mass producible, relatively inexpensive, effective gene therapy. Because at the time, the big thing was AAV virus. So using these artificial viruses to essentially go in and perform the action necessary for the expression of a protein. And so we essentially found the cheapest, easiest method to accomplish the exact same goal. And that was the exciting part, is going from something that we were engineering as like, how do we make the most of this thing, to being like, oh my God, this is scalable. This works. This could be the essentially the Kraft mac and cheese of gene therapy. Follistatin gene therapy specifically. I think you didn't mention that word oh, yeah. yet to explain what it is. Can you talk a bit about that and how you selected that specifically? And yeah, what so, is kind of the addressable market for follistatin gene therapy? Yeah, absolutely. So the first, so keep in mind, we can put in any canonical protein you want. The one we selected for the first target was Folstatin 344. And so Folstatin is this hormonal protein. It's a selective myelostatin inhibitor. Basically what that means in English is it is a little protein that essentially tells your muscles not to atrophy. And it's very selective. So it will target your skeletal muscles. It won't target your cardiac muscles. And there's a couple other interactions, but it's really relatively safe to have a person expressing high levels of Folstatin. So that was the one safety factor. Currently, we have a kill switch on it, but in the early days, we didn't. A kill switch means that after you've gotten the therapy, mm -hmm. which you get through an injection right now into your body fat, mm -hmm. I think it's like an antibiotic that you get or like an over-the-counter pill that you take. And then basically yeah. the, uh, the mechanism is switched off, right? And it doesn't do what it's doing anymore. Exactly. So, you know, we have a little uh, kill switch that's inducible by... Uh, an outside molecule, so you just have to take a little pill and it will stop the actual expression of the gene therapy. But before that, we still wanted to select a very safe target just for the sake of, you know, the mice, but also for ourselves, since we were already kind of gung-ho about, hey, if this works, we could easily test this on a human being. And so Folistatin was selected because you can essentially pump an individual full of Folistatin and there's really no negative outcomes. There's a few clinics in Florida that do this. And the big issue with Folistatin, because uh, it's already used in some treatment capacity, is that it doesn't have a very long half-life. So if I pump you full of Folistatin, the half-life is going to be 90 minutes. So about half of the Folistatin I IV'd into you is going to be gone in 90 minutes. It's not really a, a, a long-term effective kind of protein in terms of like just one you can put into you. But if you have kind of onboard production, you know, it's very, very viable in terms of a treatment option for things such as types of muscle wasting diseases, potentially bone wasting diseases, as well as a few others, but mostly al along those lines. So people with 
muscular dystrophy, potentially a, a mitigation of ALS symptoms. Essentially, anytime you just want to keep on muscle for whatever reason, it's a rel relatively good protein to target. And the, with the benefit of the fact that you can just pump as much as you want into an individual with no health outcomes, really. Great. But mac and cheese, you mean that is just widely useful for a large yeah. population, right? So you can take it or it's very useful for you if you have any of these diseases. But also if you just want to gain muscles and increase both bone strength and density, right? Yeah, there's a wide different variety of diseases where like being able to retain muscle is quite advantageous for both patient outcomes and even survivability. I say also the the Kraft mac and cheese because this particular type of construct, I'm familiar, I'm sure everyone's familiar at this point. We just went through a pandemic and there was this big thing about the cold chain that was needed to have the mRNA vaccines. They had to have at negative 80, had to have these super duper freezers. And this does not need that. Uh, plasmids are very stable. As long as it wasn't exposed to direct sunlight, you could put it in a cardboard box in a hot car in the middle of Texas, and it would be fine as long as light didn't hit it. And so you're able, you know, hypothetically, and hopefully in the future, you're going to be able to ship vials of this stuff out into the middle of the jungle or the Sahara, wherever it needs to go. And so that's what I was meaning about Kraft Mac and Cheese. This is something not just for the well-infrastructured world, but also for the entirety of the world, wherever you find yourself. Now let's talk about the challenges you face as a biotech company in the United States. We had many episodes on this podcast where we talked about the FDA, about clinical trials, about the ethics of it, and also about the inefficiency of it, right? So it takes like 10 to 12 years. It costs hundreds of millions of dollars to get a new drug or therapy through clinical trials before you're allowed to produce and sell the drug, right? So can you talk a bit about your interactions with the FDA? and why that caused you to pursue a different strategy. We still plan to interact with the FDA. Uh, we're getting everything ready for around August to disclose some of the stuff from our phase one to them. They're just doing their jobs, but it is a organization whose primary focus is on safety. And keep in mind, their incentives aren't to have a bunch of highly innovative new drugs on the market, their incentive is on safety. And so, and they do a good job of that, but at the expense of new treatments being easily accessible or coming online quicker and quicker. And so one of the reasons we started the path on the way we were doing is actually because the cost of interacting with the FDA. If I was to go and start talking to the FDA, I, as an individual, can't really do that. Or as a company, that's, we have to essentially hire very particular lawyers, and then they go and arrange a pre-meeting with the FDA, and then there's an actual meeting. But all that time, this takes several months of time, and also lawyer fees. As a small company, that's highly detrimental. And then on top of that, there's a whole process, even before you get to the IRB process of actually getting the doctors together and actually hashing out an experimental plan, 
It um, costs like 20,000 to get that meeting or something like that. And then I think 150,000 for that, what was it, that form that you need to submit? Basically that talks about like previous and animal studies and things like that. Yeah. Now keep in mind that is, that is, that is just bureaucratic. That, that's just one, that's just an example to highlight of the process that hasn't even gotten through like the doctors and everything where they're going to actually uh, look over experimental designs and also that additional information to actually administer to individuals. It's just one of those things where on top of this huge time sink, there's this additional cost layer as well. And so the part of the reason that's really awful for startups or like just even small ma and pa pharmas, this is why a lot of smaller pharma companies just sell to larger, is they don't really have the runway. They don't have enough money saved up where they can actually get past, you know, that one or two year wait time in some cases, or just having to go through even a couple months of lawyering in order to do the communications necessary to even start the phase one, not including like the costs of the phase one. It's one of those things where there's this existential cost, both in time, um, you know, the resources aren't really as bad in terms of like the actual animal studies or the scientific needs, because keep in mind that those small little price points are just for the form, but that's money that's being spent on bureaucracy rather than the actual science. And so for us, we were able to go down to Prospera. And I guess we'll talk about in a bit and essentially have an IRB, have a reviewed study with doctor's input and an actual clinic there to administer, as well as third party testing and the whole suite uh, without that bureaucratic regime kind of being a pediment uh, unnecessarily. Keep in mind when we're discussing these things, IRBs are not identical to the FDA. The FDA's review process is not the same thing as the doctors actually counseling over and like whether or not they uh, feel comfortable administering based on the protocol or not. That, you know, these yeah, are... IRBs are institutional review boards. Correct. The word for it is ethics committees, right? As a doctor, you can be authorized by the FDA to have oversight over clinical trials. So you look at kind of the research and the study design and it's designed to prevent like the Tuskegee experiment or abuse of patients and of subjects in research, just to make sure that the ethics of it are, are clean and correct. That basically means you have a third party that has oversight over the research on, of a clinical trial. Right. And so, you know, down in Prospero, you know, with the clinic we're working with, they have an IRB board with doctors inputting every time when the protocol was given to them. And they reviewed it. They came back to us um, with change this, change this. We would like to see this particular blood test done just to confirm safety, uh, this kind of thing, the, the regular back and forth that needs to happen. And that was able to successfully happen without the FDA or a institution or like, you know, like a regulatory institution, like a governmental one, muddying the waters with lawyering and very complicated or well, not really complicated, but pricey forms exactly. as well as like and the delay in actually needing to between their 
meetings and everything just to yeah. get everything done. Just to drive that story home for listeners who don't have as much background as we have about that story, right? So it sounds kind of edgy, right? So this company is doing clinical trials abroad in Prospera in a special jurisdiction in the country of Honduras. But what's important about that is that many, I think the majority even of early stage clinical trials are already offshore in different countries, right? So there's countries like like India, like Rwanda, I think the Netherlands is big. Clinical trials really happen all over the world. Australia has gotten a reputation as a really cheap provider of clinical trials. And this is because it's so expensive and bureaucratic to do it in the United States, right? And then at the same time, going into Prospera, you're working with the GARM clinic with a set mm -hmm. of highly experienced doctors who have an IRB, meaning they have authorization by the FDA to observe kind of the protocols when it comes to safety of patient subject and things like that. So you're basically following the same process when it comes to safety. You're just cutting the cost of the bureaucracy, right? Which is something that is already very widely done by many biotech and pharma companies. And what's additionally on top of that interesting you particularly about Prospera and about the setup in which you're doing it? Is it just that it's even cheaper than the others or are there other advantages for you as a company? Well, of course, the Garm Clinic is already established down there. It is fairly local uh, in terms of like the international community. So a lot of our uh, patients are Americans uh, that head down there. So there's a logistics side to this in terms of Prosper being just direct flights from Houston, so it's a pretty quick way there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So the American-based labs can really quickly run tests and everything. So there, there's a logistics component to that, which is very important, but also the culture of Prospera, the way they have uh, the common law set up, the fact that as uh, a individuals and as a company, we can essentially operate down there relatively without as much oversight uh, in terms of the FDA, uh, while at the same time, like because of the common law, we are on the hook. In our view, you know, a lot of times we do like third party testing just because we want to make sure it's transparent that we're not fudging numbers or anything like that. Just as a company, we're very conscientious of doing everything above board and making sure everything's right and done right. And there's this ethos down in Prosper because the common law if we do something wrong, then we're, uh, you know, can be sued. And if something does someone wrong, uh, something wrong to us, then we can also sue. In our case, if it's if we do something wrong, then we're liable for three times the damage. As someone who's taken the gene therapy and has, I guess, skin in the game in some ways, that kind of really speaks to me as the quality of people that you would find in Prospera, and the freedom afforded there because of all that is immense. And so I think. There's particularly going into the future, uh, both in terms of just scientific development and medical development as well, that this is a place that can really incubate good meaning individuals and good meaning companies uh, for everything from gene therapy to any kind of biological science you could think of because of the way it's structured, the way it sounded, both from a philosophical or economic standpoint, uh, as well as just the kind of ethos it gives off. 
Exactly. And to also say, we talked about that many times on the podcast about Prospera, about common law legal options. So if you are a biotech founder, like you, Walter and Mac, mm -hmm. then you have a default yes-ish to start what you want to do. I mean, of course, you need to work with the community and with the clinic. And there is already a policing against bad actors there. But you are under very harsh penalties if something goes wrong, unless you adopt a regulation or adopt yeah. a, you do regulatory election, which means you just can start faster, right? At the same, that incentivizes you to do only things under common law that are very safe, right? Because if something goes wrong, then you have harsh punishment, which is after the fact, basically looking at the outcomes of something, which is something that I discussed with Neil Shilson on a different episode, which is an as effective, if not more effective, at least definitely a more efficient way to do regulation, right? So common law and punishing you or holding you liable for damages is regulation. Mm -hmm. It's just not sort of the same way preventative pre-market approval SDA would, FDA would want to see it, right? Now, on top of that, I think you're also in the process of, not sure how much you can already talk about, but having like a regulatory election that kind of optimizes for certain things, right? So how would you optimize if you had the choice or a magic wand or what would you consult Prospera how to optimize or create kind of a better regulatory framework than the FDA in a place like Prospera? We've already started on this journey. The common law, I think, is actually very nice because unlike, let's say, if you have a FDA kind of situation where liability is essentially wiped off the place, you know, you can't sue for damages of any kind. Um, and even down in Prosper, it's a regulated industry. Essentially, what that means is you have to have insurance. So if anything goes wrong with the study, there has to be a certain amount of insurance on those kinds of activities. I think that's actually really good because it automatically weeds out kind of certain intents in individuals. I can't just go inject people just to gather data. I have to actually care about what I'm doing and care about the patients because I'm liable for them. I think that's much more powerful than a large governmental system that just kind of washes away any possibility of liability coming back to you as long as you play their essential game. I was to say anything about how to better it. Um, I think a lot of people are already working on this in terms of integrating Prosper with being able to integrate uh, foreign companies and stuff into Prosper in a way that like still has that liability guarantee of, you know, you are held accountable for your actions. I'm not really a lawyer, but I, I think that eventually over time, Prospera will have a much wider global community in terms of people coming in. In my opinion, I think it will end up being the Hong Kong of the Caribbean. Exactly. That's what we're working on. And also just to drive that point home, just having common law legal liability in case something goes wrong is in a way more or regulated than many of the big pharma companies are that are able to just kind of not be liable if they follow certain protocols, if they get endorsed by the FDA, which is sometimes turning out to be a political process. 
And sometimes they get away with things that aren't as safe as we thought they would be. What was it, OxyContin? There's been a few of those. You know, how could the scientific community not realize that a morphine derivative might be addicting? And, you know, there's a few types like that that's happened to the course of the FDA's process. They always trumpet the, 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 the safeguarding they did with thalidomide, but whether or not, you know, you, you've done one good thing one time, but how much good have you prevented at the same time? If you look at the amount of drugs that were developed, we're still essentially on the tail ends of what was done up until the 60s. Um, and just kind of recycling at this point a lot of older drugs for new things. They, uh, I forget what it was for, but they've essentially also thalidomide uh, is now actually a prescription that you can go and get for certain things with the big warning that you don't get pregnant on it. So even that found its way back through the FDA process. Which goes to say that the process with the FDA is far from perfect. And to say it mildly, right? So that approves bad drugs sometimes. And what's even a bigger problem is that it fails to approve a great number of good drugs, right? So it's extremely hard for young biotech founders or companies to get market access, right? Just because the pre-market approval regulations are so stringent, which is causing us to just have less life-saving innovation in the market which is kind of why we do what we do in Prospera. The intention is not to have an unregulated space. It's, in, it's actually in some ways more regulated, right? Because you're actually liable for harm that you're doing. And in other ways, we're just trying to make the process faster just because that saves lives. And at the same time, as safe or even safer. Maybe you can talk a bit about because that is not following the path that others are going, going outside of the mainstream or the Overton window opens yourself up to just a great many questions, right? So what would you say about kind of the attention that you've gotten and what has surprised you most about that? And what would you say in response to that? You know, um, I, we really haven't gotten that much attention. There's been like a, a Mr. Ford Fisher came down and interviewed us uh, with news to share. Uh, there was an MIT review article and I found it interesting. I didn't realize they had reached out to us going through it. I don't know if they'd actually come down. This isn't a very far away place. This isn't on the other side of the earth. It's a, as simple as a couple hour flight from Houston, Texas. From my understanding, from my colleagues in the scientific community, when I've gone to conferences and I've talked to people, there's been a little bit of excitement. In terms of like, uh, particularly like Vector, you know, people talking shop and essentially, um, there's excitement around that. It's a little bit weird to a certain extent, but not too weird because doing trials overseas isn't really something that's that unheard of at all. It's quite common, in fact. I think the fact we're also doing things by bringing a lot of our patients are Americans coming down to Prospera instead of repeating the issues of previous generations but not really we don't really experiment or not experiment but we don't have uh Honduran patients a lot of the time it's most it's almost all exclusively Americans in some ways the ethics are i feel like a lot better than people 
give us credit to. But I also wonder with some of, you know, it's easy to say, oh, these Americans are coming down and doing these horrible experiments of some kind or another. When in reality, it's very benign, very simplistic. And hopefully sometimes towards August, we'll be in contact with the FDA and continuing trials in the United States, as well as in other countries. We plan on uh, pursuing uh, with the Japanese Ministry of Health, as well as other ministries of health. I feel like there is this narrative uh, in certain spaces of media that experimentation is bad for some reason, that to test a drug or to test a new thing. There's, uh, I had a, a friend once say that people are really negative about the future these days. You know, the AI is going to take your job. The Uber and the Lyft drivers are going to run all the taxi cabs out of business. And, you know, for the majority of things, like our lives are going to get better because of technology. Um, I personally don't know how I would keep my life straight without the calendar on my phone. It would be really annoying to drive in Austin, Texas traffic with a manual transmission. It would be terrible, in my opinion, to live without a refrigerator. Change will happen. New things will come about. Designed by people for people to make the lives of people easier in one way or another. But I do feel like there's this ethos where people are unsure and very negative about the future because I don't know if it's a fear of change, a kind of assumption that people don't have the best intentions, or that because of it's not in my sphere of you know the people I see and of my influence, that it must be bad. And it's almost partisan in that way. I, I feel like uh, that's mostly my take on it. I feel like there hasn't been that much about us um, that's been negative. Uh, I think mostly curiosity. In a couple of months, we'll be publishing the paper and then out to the scientific community. So they're more than welcome to go through it. And once all the data and everything's published about the study, which that's something we intend to do, is make sure all this is available, not just for regulators at like the some ministry of health or the FDA, but also for the broader scientific community, because all, any development either done by in an academic setting or a commercial setting is always invaluable, invaluable because science is built on a network of people working together on sh common and shared goals, whether that's gene therapy, whether that's how to build the best car. It's all, at the end of the day, a bunch of nerds talking shop. Yeah, the question why people are averse to change and the change makers on kind of the edges that are doing something new and different and experimenting is an eternal question, question that keeps coming up. And that's one of the big questions that I'm trying to answer with this podcast, the Machiavelli effect, bringing about a new order of things and things like that. Mark Andreessen said in his essay about AI, that every new wave of technological progress or new technology was instantiated or it was met with a moral panic in response, right? Just from the bicycles that were supposed to be used. So um, people go into their neighboring village and like have sex out of wedlock or something like that. So every new technology was met with this initial panic or skepticism. Wait, you're telling me that people were 
having moral panics over bicycles? Yes. Okay, so I Mark feel Andreessen like is documenting that in his blog post on some of the other work. So anything that you that you can imagine was met with, oh, this is going to make everything so bad. <laughs> you know, I, and I feel like gene therapy uh, is going to end up. It's at some point people are going to have a moral panic about it as well. If hypothetically people are much more healthier in one way or another, like attractive or anything, or people are doing various gene things to make essentially to be the person they want to be. Uh, I think that, of course, there's going to be a moral panic about that, like in decades to come. But I mean, that's an individual's choice. And I think that the goal in life sometimes shouldn't be about like the purity of the bio, the natural biological state, what you got handed with, but rather, are you happy as an individual? And what do you want to do with your life? You know, we choose things all the time, whether or not you want to go to college, whether you want to buy this car, whether you want to get this job, what do you want to do? How do you want to cut your hair? I, I don't really see at the end of the day, particularly as things develop and become more safer and more available, like it will just be the same thing with genes. Yeah. So brace yourself for that coming moral panic. But it's also why we go to places like the frontier or why it's important to have a frontier like Prospera, like other startup cities and network states in the future where we can, well, do things less encumbered by the people or by the places where the status quo is has entrenched interests that can go against you and have these places where we can experiment. To close it off with and to for any listener who wants to see what we're doing in down in Prospera. I just announced a couple of conferences down there for much of the second half of the year. One that will be particularly interesting for anyone who's in biotech or in longevity, where Walter will also hopefully be joining is November 17 to 19, Decentralized Science and Longevity, a three-day conference on the island. Walter, to close it off with from your side, um, do you want to give listeners a bit of an impression or, or talk a bit about what it's like to live or to spend time on Roatan on the island. Well, I've been down there several times and I hate to uh, say this, but every time I go down trying to get used to it, but it's still absolutely paradise. The water is crystal clear and it's never cold. The foliage and the trees are absolutely stunning. The weather is beautiful and breezy and just so inviting. I have several local friends at this point after going down there for so long. The people are very nice. They're very Your welcoming. Is really good. <laughs> and it's also an interesting island. Like it has a long history. It's essentially a, a, a bilingual island. So, you know, if you can speak English or you can speak Spanish, you'll do just fine. It truly is a little paradise in the Caribbean. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Walter, for coming on this show. And I hope to see some of you that are listening down there. I see you definitely see you down there again next time. Thank you so much, Nicholas. And it, it was a pleasure being on. Oh, come on now. You know you deserve it. A steak patty on any McDonald's breakfast sandwich. I mean any breakfast sandwich. 
biscuit, McMuffin, bagel, McGriddles, a juicy steak patty on any breakfast sandwich. And when you order through the app, buy one and get one free. Now go get them. Valid for product of equal or lesser value. Limited time only at participating McDonald's. Valid one time per day. Excludes one, two, three dollar menu.